Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Hey, that is one of my favorite songs. That's beautiful. It's a little bit morbid, but I, I hear these songs and I don't know, I don't, believe it or not, I don't get to choose the songs for every Sunday. And worship leaders do that. But I get to choose my songs for my funeral. So I'm like, oh yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, welcome here. We hope nobody's funeral is anytime soon. Uh, but we're thankful that whenever time comes, we can trust in him. Come thou long expected savior. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful for your grace and mercy and love. And we thank you that we get to worship you. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our savior. And thank you that he's coming back again. We pray that this morning we would anticipate his return and understand the process that uh, he has us going through. His work and his plan and his promise, they are great and they are good, just like you. And so we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, welcome to Midland Free. My name is Jeremy. If this is the first time you're joining us, we're glad you're here. We're starting now, December 1st, our Advent series or our Christmas season series, the word Advent's just an old word that means coming. And so what we do at this time of year is celebrate the coming of Jesus. But it's not only his first coming that we're celebrating, but we're also looking forward to his second coming as well. The first coming was great and has began the process of restoration. But the second coming, I think, will even be greater in which all things are fully uh, resolved and fixed. And so that's the one we're really, really excited about. But this is the one that leads us to that. And so we celebrate that today. And so to do so, the way we're uh, looking at this series is through a bunch of first, the lens of the first. So today, for example, we'll be looking at the first promise. And then next week, it'll be the first family. And it'll be the first this and first that. And eventually, we'll get to the first Christmas, and we'll celebrate Christ coming in that way. So today is the first promise, and that comes in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there to the third chapter, of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And we will look at God's first promise to us, Genesis chapter 3. says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God. But God. Two of the most important words in the entire Bible. They begin the Bible and they continue the story throughout the entire length of the breadth and scope of his plan. But God, we did this, but God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, whoever that may be, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Genesis chapter 3 begins the story, not just the story of Adam and Eve, but the story of you and me, story of all humanity. Eve is the mother of the living. And in this text, it's interesting, I'll show you in a minute, but it refers to her both as an individual, like a mother of her family, but also as the mother of all of creation. Here begins all things. This is God's start, at least for us, but not for him. And so what we see in this chapter is really the foundation of redemptive history, of God's plan of salvation. Genesis is the foundation for the rest of the story. And what we see in Genesis then is both the problem and the promise. We see the problem that starts this thing that messes everything up and we see the promise to fix it. This is, in essence, what we deal with every day in our lives. This is not some theological premise that is untouched by humanity and preachers talk about in ivory towers. This is real, down-to-earth life. There is a problem we have, and a solution is needed. And we see that problem each and every day in our sin, in our lack, in our suffering, in our struggle, in our labor, in our toil that seems unproductive and unfulfilling. Here lies the curse It has affected all of humanity. There's a problem and it's big and it begins with the serpent. It says in the first uh, verse of Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was more crafty. I hate that line. (laughs) That just stinks. Why can't the serpent be an idiot? Wouldn't it be nicer if he was completely stupid? If every time the devil showed up on the scene, we knew who he was and we laughed him off the stage. Oh, there he is again, that old dumb devil trying to pull off his tricks. We'll never go for that. But it's the exact opposite, isn't it? He's more crafty. In reality, we don't realize it, but every time we see him, we're like, oh, what is that? 
That's beautiful. I, kind, I, I think I like I, I don't know. Should I like that? Looks good. Feels foul. Lord of the Rings quote. Fear feels, looks fair, feels foul. That is Satan. He is so crafty. He is the serpent who slithers alongside Eve and comes around beside her to tempt and test her. And what we see is this, is that his method of temptation is not blunt, in your face, and obvious, but instead it is subtle, it is tiny, it is tricky, it's manipulative, and it's very, very desirable. The reason it's so desirable and this reason it's so insidious and so hateful and disgusting is because Satan takes what is good and twists it and makes it bad. You see, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this whole time, God is like, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. All of this is good. Look how good this is. And Satan's sitting there thinking, "Hmm, I'm going to see what I can do about that. And he knows that we have a desire. We have a desire for food. That's good. Your desire for food is good. Despite how many Tums or acid indigestion pills you had to take this week. Your desire for food is good. But what happens is Satan comes alongside of you and he says, let me take that desire and twist it a little. What was meant for your sustenance, what was meant for your encouragement, what was meant for your joy, what was meant for your... um, Regeneration is now being used for your destruction. You've eaten too much and your tummy hurts and you feel bad and you're tired. Food is supposed to fulfill you and make you feel good and give you energy. But now it's doing the exact opposite. Why? Because Satan made those pies. (laughs) Because Satan, no, no, if you made pies, you're not Satan. That's just not going to work, is it? Oh, boy. Roll it back faster. (laughs) What I mean is, look, there are things that are good. And one little sliver is probably fine. And maybe two little slivers. But eventually you eat the whole thing and you feel bad. That's what happens. Satan takes something that is inherently good that God has made. And he twists it and makes it evil. He takes your desires which are right and true and just and he manipulates them so you want to fulfill them immediately and in the wrong ways. Listen to that. Immediately and in the wrong ways. Okay, so if you're not listening, how about this? Sex. Everybody listening now? Same thing. Same exact thing. God has made you in a certain way. He created male and female. That's why our church is really big on that. It's a foundational biblical issue that represents the gospel. We can't let that go to the side. And so, here's this thing, this pillar of humanity, this picture of the church and Jesus and what he's doing. And we look at that and we say that's good. In that relationship, in that unity, in that... Um, coming together of a male and female is wonderful. And that desire that God placed in your heart for that is good, so good. But what Satan said is, aha, uh-huh, you think that's good. You want to wait? No, 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 don't wait. Have it now. It doesn't have to be with just one. Take as many as you like. Or maybe even try it the other way. Who cares? And he twisted. 
And he manipulates it. And he turns that good desire on its head. And all of a sudden, you go for it. And you grab and you reach. And you realize what you thought would make you feel good actually makes you feel sick. And guilty. That's what Satan does with desire. Good desire that God has created. And designed for you to enjoy and bring glory to him. Satan will twist it and use it against you. It's so insidious. That's why he's crafty. He's evil. It's not obvious. I used food and sex. You can apply it to anything. I'm going to turn the mirror on us here in just a second. But I mean, think about little kids in Christmas. Ooh, I've got to have that. (laughs) Once I get that, I will be happier and my life will be better. That's a lie. Once you get that, your life will be better and you'll be happier. That's a lie. That's coming from somebody who wants to take your money. But the truth is, what is lost can never be bought back by our own money. It can be bought, but not by us. And I'll show you how in just a second. We can't buy happiness and we can't buy a better life. But there is someone who can Let me show you how that works. Here's what's lost. First of all, number one, the problem is big. The certain is crafty. He is more crafty. Don't any of us ever mistake the fact that the Satan is smarter than us. There's a lot of smart people out here. And most of you are smarter than I am. I get that. We're in Midland and there's a lot of smart folks. But Satan is smarter than all of us combined. And he's tricky and he knows what he's doing. And he can figure out what your desires are. And he can put them right in front of you and get you really quick. He's smart. He's crafty. But this is not a sermon about Satan. This is a sermon about Jesus. So let's just understand. This is how he is. But there's more. Certain is The serpent is crafty. And as a result of his craftiness, what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that he captured us. He captured us. He captured Eve and he captured us. The trap has slammed shut. She bit the apple. Now there's no going back. And sin and death and pain and misery have entered the world. That is what God promised. Satan promised something different. He said, hey, you'll be like God. It'll be great. True? Not true. Not true. Here's the thing. Ready? You can write this down. God's promises always come true. Satan's never do. God's promises always come true. Satan's never do. Satan promises them one thing. Of course it doesn't come true. God says the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. But they didn't die. Oh, yes, they did. They started right then and there. And not only that, but their relationship was severed and cut off. It died. Their relationship with God died that day on that spot. Now, fortunately for them, the way God is, is he doesn't just leave it like that and say, okay, you screwed up. Good luck. No more me. You lost it. But instead, that big piece that we just pointed at, but God, God pursues them. God stoops to conquer. C.S. Lewis says to defeat his enemy, he actually has to lower himself. He brings himself down to contest with Satan because there is no contest. 
But here is God who pursues them. And what we see is the serpent is crafty. The serpent captured them. But there was something lost in that process. And that is the death of their relationship. They, they, their relationship died that day. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. All of our hearts yearn for something. Would you agree? Go like this. All of our hearts desire something. And we think, according to the commercials, that it's this or that. I want this. That looks good. That'll help me. That'll clean up my yard better. That'll blow snow better. That'll be more fun on my bigger, bigger, bigger screen. That'll be bigger. It'll be better. That'll help. And in some small ways, those things might. But here's the thing. In this, what happens is Satan takes our ultimate yearning, our ultimate desire, and he twists it. Our ultimate yearning is for good. It is for good. We desire good. But who is good or what is good but God? Nothing. Everything else falls short of that. We said last week he's a standard of goodness. And therefore the best, the very best thing that we can desire is God. And we desire God, but sometimes we forget and we don't realize it. And we mistake what is good for what is best. And we want these other things and we go after them and we pursue them. And then we don't realize that Satan is using our desires to twist them against us. And here in Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what he's doing to Eve. So look at all this good food. Yummy. What about that one? The one you can't have. How about that? That's probably the best. Have you ever tried it? Well, then how do you know? Why not? Oh, surely it can't be like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God said that. But what about this? Hey, church, God said the Bible says, you know, not until you're married. But come on. Everybody's living together nowadays. Why why bother? He takes scripture and he twists it and he manipulates it and he turns it and he takes your desire and he twists it and he manipulates it and he turns it. And all of a sudden you find yourself desiring what is good but not best. And then you're in trouble. And as a result, that relationship that you had with God is now messed up. Her relationship with God is messed up. Eve's relationship with God was messed up. Adam's relationship with God was messed up. And that yearning they have, that desire to be fulfilled is no longer, they're no longer capable of fulfilling with it. He used to walk with them in the garden. Now he has kicked them out of the garden and put two giant seraphim, two warrior angels in front of it, guarding it with flaming swords. So they can't get back to him. They have lost that opportunity. But as you watch the development of salvation in the Old Testament, one of the ways in which it's described is, well, let me, let me see if you can figure it out. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch did what? What did he do? He, you don't, you don't even have to look. Enoch what with God? Walked with God. Okay, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah, Walked with God. Um, Leviticus. Yes. Even in Leviticus. You will be, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will go for it. Walk with you. Deuteronomy, when they're going in to conquer the promised land, I will be in your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you. And therefore you must be holy for I am holy for the Lord your God walks. In your midst. In Eden, God walked with them. But when they sin, something dies. Something 
dies, and that is the relationship, the fellowship that they had with God, and they no longer walk with him. They can't. It's been cut off. That opportunity is no longer there. And as a result, they're yearning for that. And they think they want to go back inside Eden. Because they remember, in Eden, I was never cold. In Eden, I was never hungry. In Eden, I never got cut. In Eden, I was never sad. In Eden, I did not have to work this hard to get the ground to produce fruit. In Eden, we never had to shovel snow. Let's get back to Eden. How can we do that? And they think that what they've lost is all of that stuff. Paradise lost. But what they don't realize is what they really lost was the opportunity to walk with God. And the only way to get back to all those other good things is to get back to the best thing. If fellowship with God can be perfectly restored, then all those other things will fall into place. When you walk with God, now in this life, I'll explain how it works out. But ultimately, the restoration we're looking for is perfect fellowship with him. And when we are in that place, heaven and earth are all made well. But we're not there yet. Fellowship has been lost. The serpent is more crafty. He's captured us. So what do we do? Well, that's the problem. But the promise, the promise is bigger. Promise is way bigger. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says this. Here's the promise. Let me remind you of what that was again. Here it is up on a slide. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice offspring is kind of like sheep. You have one sheep or two sheep. You have one sheep or a million sheep. You have one offspring or offspring can be plural. Singular plural. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a promise. Serpent, Satan, there is one coming after you who will crush you. You will strike him and it will hurt. You will go after his heel. But the blow that he delivers you will be fatal. Your blow will be crippling and injury. But his blow will destroy you altogether. Here is the promise that has begun in Genesis chapter 3, that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's the offspring of Eve, I alluded to that earlier, who is, for example, Cain and Abel. Now, what happened? Cain killed Abel. How did Cain fare against temptation? Not so well. However, There is a seed, a promised one coming. And that one, the next child, is Seth. Now, Eve thinks that Seth's going to be that deliverer. But again, like Ruth, like Boaz, like this big genealogical picture, she doesn't realize that this is coming through thousands of generations. And so what happens is you move from Seth to Noah to Abraham to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David to Jesus. And this offspring, this first promise leads to the first family, which eventually leads to the first person, Christ. The real Adam who did what the original Adam could not. 
And so here's the plan. There's this great big plan. It's all promised ahead of time. Why is that important? Because I want to just theologically expound the mysteries of the universe. No, because you got to understand that the plan, the promise is bigger than the problem. If you go through everyday life, all you see is the problem and you're not doing so great at night. But if you understand that the promise is bigger than problem, then there's hope. And the serpent is more crafty than any of us. But his craftiness is retroactive. It is not proactive. His craftiness is after God has created the world, after God has created him. Do you understand that God created Satan? He's a created being. He's nothing. Jesus knew when he made Satan what Satan would do. It wasn't like, oops, uh uh-oh, the devil's got me now. One arm behind my back. What am I going to do? No. He's got this whole thing planned. He makes Satan. He knows what Satan's going to do. And he's got a plan for when Satan does it. Satan thinks, I'm getting him. (laughs) Right. This is from the very beginning, man. This is from before the foundations of the world. This was all planned long in advance. And so guess what, Satan? Yeah, you're crafty. Yeah, you tricked the people, but you haven't tricked the creator. And so Jesus' plan, the serpent is crafty, but Jesus is wiser. The plan is greater than the craft. So the problem is big, the serpent is crafty, but the promise is bigger, Jesus' plan is bigger. The problem is big, Satan has captured us, but the promise is bigger, Jesus has freed us. That's why in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about going into the strong man's home, that would be our world. The person who owns that home first has to be bound before you can plunder their goods. When Jesus comes to earth, he binds Satan and then plunders his household, freeing the captives so that they can live out from under his dominion. As a result, although we were ensnared, although that trap had snapped shut, Jesus goes and binds Satan and then pries open the, the snare and says, you're released, you're free, go. You don't have to sin like you once did. Now you can walk with me. And all of a sudden, fellowship with God has been restored. Not fully, but at least in part. See how this works? Jesus is our what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Originally in the garden, there was no more God with us. It was cut off. But now because Jesus has become human... We have God with us and we can now once again walk with God. So the problem is big. The serpent is crafty. He has captured us and our fellowship was lost. But the promise is bigger. Jesus is wiser. He is more powerful and he walks with us. Our fellowship has been restored. So then, pastor, how do we live if that is the case? If those three things you say are true, even if you remember nothing else, just remember the the problem is big, the promise is bigger. How then do I live? Well, here's the thing. I just got done telling you about how Satan loves to twist things. That's one of the reasons it's so important for you to know God and know his word. It's not an academic exercise. It's a real life pursuit. And this is the thing that will give you the clarity of mind when something comes before you and says, this will make your life better. This will make you happier. You can say, "Mm, really? I'm not sure. Let's see. What does God's word say about that? 
And you can compare the claims of one to the claims of another. And remember, God's promises always come true. Satan's never do. So you check the promises. You need to know the scripture. Not only know the scripture, but then you've got to purge your mind. You got to clean things out every once in a while, every so often and say, you know, what? I was thinking this way. That was worldly. That was other than Christ. But now I remember what you have promised and I want to switch my desires. I want to change my mind. I want to realign at God with you. We've got to bank on those promises. So here's the two applications that make for today. Number one, believe God's promise is bigger. I just got done telling you it's bigger and trying to show you from scripture, but we got to believe that it's bigger. You actually say, yeah, this thing is for real. And then you may say, okay, I'm there. Not only do I want you to believe that it's bigger, I want you to believe that it's better. That's the hard part. Because that immediate gratification is sitting right there in front of you. And you're like, I'm going to have it now. Why not? That's a long way off. But you know from your experience in life that in general... Oftentimes, the best things are those that are hardest to get to, take the longest to get there, and are the most expensive along the way. But once you do, you're like, you know what? That was worth it. It was hard. It was difficult. But that really paid off. That's God's plan, even on a grander level. God's promises are truly better. And that takes faith to affirm because sometimes that means you're going to have to deny yourself. And you have to say, no. But by doing so, we believe that the outcome will be better in the end. The problem is big, but the promise is even bigger. The serpent struck his heel. But that wound was not the final act. Genesis provides the foundation that the promise is bigger than the problem. That God is good. God is at work. And Jesus wins. Father, we thank you and praise you for your perfect work. We thank you. Your promise is bigger than the problem. Lord, admittedly, I I see a lot of problems in my life. I I see problems that are material that I'd like to fix. I see things that are relational that are still at work. And I see uh, stuff that is um, spiritual that needs resolved. And there's a lot. There's a lot. I I want my desires to change. I I want um, your will to be done. And I, I want to desire it more than anything. And yet... There's the struggle, Lord, and I I pray that as those desires are constantly twisted, that you would realign them each and every day. Lord, great is your faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning. And we just pray that every day we get up, you would renew our hearts towards you. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.